Welcome back to the program. It used to be during the days of the Cold War that watching the Kremlin and trying to read meaning into every nuance, tea leave, and coming and going was elevated to an art form. Today, it's the same for the Fed. Every meeting, every utterance of the Fed chair and Fed governors is parsed and analyzed and poured over for some hint of what the Fed will do and what it might mean for the markets, for the economy, and for the politics of the country. But it wasn't always so. In the aftermath of the 1907 financial panic, Congress created the Fed for reasons not dissimilar to the state of a transitional economy like the one we have today. But in a spirit that was very dissimilar from today, they engaged in compromise for the benefit of national unity that seemed a far cry from anything that might happen today. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Roger Lowenstein. He's reported for the Wall Street Journal for more than a decade. His previous books include Buffett, When Genius Failed, Origins of the Crash, and While America Aged. It is my pleasure to welcome Roger Lowenstein back to this program to talk about his new book, America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to be on the show, and i got to say, the intro on Kremlinology was just spot on. So, uh, you know, I, I, I love that. Well, Because that is, that is what they're doing. They're reading tea leaves, and uh, you nailed it. it. It is a good jumping-off point, because every time there's a Fed meeting, and I think our listeners, even those that listen to a little bit of financial news, can understand this, every time there's a Fed meeting, the discussion about it, the parsing about it, the talking about it far exceeds anything in the in the sports world, in the politics world. It, it is the most finely tuned discussion of nuance about what little moves the Fed might make. Yeah, yeah yes, particularly as you just alluded to the fact that in most of these meetings, uh, nothing happens. And, <laughs> um, you know, one of the purposes of the book, it's it's easy to be uh, sort of frustrated with the Fed today. And, you know, it's a big bureaucracy. It's it's not uh, lovely in its uh, appearance, but was to go back and um, look at the alternative and look at how things were uh, before we had a Federal Reserve, but, but when we also had uh, financial crises, uh, great divisions about um, money and finance in the country, and, and see where we were better off, or if not, why we founded the Federal Reserve. One of the things about this story, and I'm sure that it was, was a consideration and, and a thought as, as you were putting this all together, is how remarkably similar in so many ways the economic state was back at the turn of the century in the early 1900s and how some of the reactions to, to creating something like the Fed were also not dissimilar from some of the issues and arguments that we're still carrying on today. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it really is striking. Uh, you had um, frequent financial uh, panics and crashes of a very uh, terrible financial panic in 1907 and uh, sending the country uh, into a uh, serious depression. You had great uh, differences of opinion. Um, bankers, uh, in some cases, behaving uh, very badly, in some cases not. Uh, people, particularly in the interior of the country, away from the cities, uh, very suspicious of bankers, not trusting them, uh, very suspicious of Wall Street uh, and of Washington. Uh, politicians, uh, some more responsible than others. I, I'm reminded, particularly in this election season in our own country, that uh, when Woodrow Wilson ran for president in 1912, uh, he commented, uh, he said on the stump that uh, he was opposed to the idea of a central bank. A central bank was one of the issues in the campaign. And this was at odds with what Wilson had said privately. And uh, a Wall Street banker got a hold of him and said, you know, why'd you say that? And he said, uh, you don't understand politics. 
it doesn't matter what I say should be done. I first got to be elected. So the, you know, the, the political realities and, and the, the you know, human dynamics certainly haven't changed. Uh, and and you know, it's always fun to go back in history and see people uh, living through the same sorts of challenges, responding in, in you know, very but similar ways as, as we have today. And in, in terms of the specific issues, there was discussion about wealth concentration. There was discussion about corporate resentment, as you say, about hatred of banking. Wall Street reform, financial reform was talked about at the time. Concern about who, Absolutely. who would be allowed Excuse to fail. Me. This is a period when... Uh, we had a big, uh, then they were called trusts, we might call them monopolies uh, today, but, but uh, business was uh, moving in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, from small business to big conglomerates, these trusts. Uh, people were very upset about it. They were frightened that the center of economic power no longer seemed to be the, maybe the local business or banker in their own community, but some far-off national corporation. For the first time, the country had... Uh, many millionaires. That was a, a, a new element on the American scene. And there was a great a deal of talk about, uh, they use different language, but about uh, economic uh, inequality. And uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, when before he became president, but when he was uh, president of, of Princeton College, said, uh, and I think a phrase really uh, resonates today, he said that uh, the forces which we've been taught to associate with progress uh, are so frightening to so many. And, and um, you know, I think anybody who, you know, can appreciate the, the wonders of technology and yet, you know, the, the, the way these big corporations seem so distant and frightening can, can, uh, can relate to that. Coming out of the 1907 financial panic, what was the argument for a Federal Reserve, for a central bank, which had already existed in many countries in Europe? Well, you know, what is a, is a central bank? What is a, a Federal Reserve? It's, it's a place where the credit of the country can be uh, concentrated in, in one great reservoir, the same way you'd have uh, a water reservoir. And, uh, Paul Warburg, one of the crusaders for uh, a federal bank, said that you know the, the United States banking system resembled a town in which each household had a, a, a little pail of water in the backyard, uh, but no central reservoir. And, and you know this might be fine if somebody wanted to drink a water, but not for fighting a fire. And in 1907, we had a fire, a financial fire. We had this terrible financial panic. Banks shut down. They literally ran out of money. We had literal physical bank runs where people ran to the bank to take their money out. Banks started uh, handing out monopoly money, just in script that they invented because they, uh, they didn't have uh, dollars left. The, the dynamic that happens in a panic is each bank, to protect itself, calls in its loans, it stops lending, it hoards its own reserves, so each bank takes an action which, although it protects itself, exacerbates the problem for the community. And there was no counterforce. There was no central bank to say, hey, no one else is lending. I've got to step in and start lending in force, you know, exactly as the Federal Reserve Bank in modern times did in the crisis of 2008. So the argument was we need a lender of last resort. We need some you know, central insurance or collective security mechanism in our banking system. Given that this was already operative in many European countries, why did it take so long for it to become a key issue in the U.S.? Well, that's the great question, and it really goes back to our founding. You know, we are a country that, you know, our, our original story was rebelling against a distant king in England. And, uh, uh, you know, many of the founding fathers, beginning with Thomas Jefferson, 
any any hint of a strong central government in Washington smacked of the very thing we had rebelled against. Jefferson didn't want uh, much of a government in Washington. Uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton did, and that the original battle over federalism was over the the battle that you know Ham- Alexander Hamilton wanted a national bank. Jefferson didn't. Uh, Hamilton won, but the Jeffersonians got rid of it. We went through it again. We created a second bank of the United States, and uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, a Jeffersonian, uh, you know, to the core, got rid of that one. That to to uh, Jeffersonians, to small government disciples, to, you know, today we call them Tea Partiers. Uh, this smacks of the very thing we rebelled against. Uh, they didn't want a strong central entity in Washington. They were afraid it would be controlled by Wall Street. Um, and and we're dealing with this this today. This is a, a unique. It is the, you know, guiding battle in in American history. It's interesting that even then, in addition to the pushback to any central bank from the small government Jeffersonian ideal, there was also, and in this period of time that you write about as well, a pushback from the more progressive side. Talk about that. Well, that's right. The the politics of the country were uh, changing fast for for. You know, all the period after the Civil War, the United States was controlled by the what was then known as the Conservative Republican Party. This was uh, the Republican Party of Ulysses Grant, uh, Benjamin Harrison, uh, and so on. Uh, we only had one Democratic president before Wilson uh, since the Civil War. That was uh, Grover Cleveland. In the late 19th century, the Republican Party, which after all had been the party of Lincoln, the, the party that freed the slaves, began to feel that the traditional Republicans were two conservatives and a a different wing known as the progressives broke away and they wanted things like regulation of monopolies uh... they wanted things like direct election of senators because uh, senators in that day were chosen by the legislatures they wanted uh, laws about campaign contributions you know familiar today uh... some of them wanted child labor laws the democrats were still very much the party of a laissez-faire small government uh, they were a, a southern-dominated party, and I have to say they were they were dominated by very much by people who wanted to uh, keep a policy of racial segregation uh, going in the South, and for that reason didn't want uh, any federal power at all. The, as the lines began to shift, the the Republicans began to divide uh, into uh, more conservative Republicans and uh, more liberal or progressive Republicans, uh, such as by uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and the Democrats too. Uh, the, the Woodrow Wilson represented a new type of Democrat. He'd been a um, a college president, uh, a scholar himself, uh, uh, you know, very much a student of American history, and began to embrace some of the progressive ideas. Although the to, to, to get to your question, uh, although the idea for banking reform was with a small p, very much a progressive idea. It was a new idea. It was an idea of organizing our country's finances in some um, educated, studied, rational way. You would have thought that the progressive politicians of the day would have embraced it because it w- the idea came from Wall Street, because it seemed to sanction uh, the power of big banks. They were very afraid of it. And um, bankers to the progressives were anathema. It, w- it would sort of be like today. You know, if let's say Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, pitched an idea, you know, is is this a Senator Elizabeth Warren going to be likely to embrace it? There was a a great deal of tension then between uh, progressive politicians and bankers, and so what 
what really should have been a progressive idea was marginalized and, uh, and pushed to the sidelines for a long time. And William Jennings Bryan really is at the center of that initial progressive opposition, and then he comes around at least for a while. Yeah, he, he's quite an interesting figure, I think, because he comes around and, and becomes a more nuanced than we might remember him. We remember him from one of the early scenes in the book, the, his Cross of Gold right. speech, uh, where he wants, uh, of course, money back by silver as well as gold, silver being more plentiful, there'd, there'd be more cash for farmers. He's very much, uh, I wouldn't call him a progressive as much as a populist. He's, he's anti-banker. Uh, he, he thinks that the virtue in the country resides in the farm areas, not in the cities. Uh, he, he's also, uh, you know, very much a, a teetotaler. He's, he wants more religion in, in, uh, in American life and, and, he really looks back to a nostalgic era, at least imagined, when, when American life was you know, simpler and so on. He holds tremendous power in the Democratic Party, and he, he really hands the nomination to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Wilson returns the favor, or I should say returns the debt, by making him Secretary of State. And when the uh, legislative process begins for the Federal Reserve, the, the first draft the people on the Federal Reserve Board, what we today call the governors, the people who run the Fed, are going to be private bankers chosen by bankers. And you know, this, the, Brian says, no, you, you can't do this. These people are going to control the banking system of the country. Uh, it's a vital industry. They have to be public servants. And um, bankers want none of it. It's, it's a very radical idea because we didn't, in 1913, have all sorts of public agencies running or supervising private industries. That was a, a very novel and radical idea. Uh, Brian actually threatened to leave the cabinet over this issue, which would have been a, a major crisis. Uh, Wilson could not have got the, the bill passed without him. In fact, he could have gotten much at all done without him. Brian had a hold on the, the Democratic bloc in the Congress. And so um, Wilson called uh, a special advisor of his, later quite a famous man named Louis Brandeis, of course, later famous for being in the Supreme Court, and asked what he should do. And uh, Brandeis said that Brian was absolutely right. He said bankers may have the expertise, but you can't trust them, uh, Brandeis said, even in areas of their expertise, because their advice will be self-interested. And um, Wilson uh, changed the bill so that uh, all of the people on the Federal Reserve Board would be public servants appointed by the president. The bankers howled and screamed, uh, but they've lived with it ever since. And talk a little bit about Wilson and how effective he was, which I think might surprise a lot of people. As yeah, a yeah, I'm so glad you, um, you picked that up because the Wilson, I think, that we tend to remember is the Wilson of his latter period where he first uh, is unsuccessful at keeping us out of the war, World War I, of course, and then uh, tries to sell this very idealistic uh, post-war vision to the country of being involved in the League of Nations and, and remaining uh, involved in world affairs. Of course, America wants none of it after the war. We want to go back to, uh, you know, just, just our own borders. He has a stroke, and at his end is, is not a happy one. The Wilson of this book, he, he's elected in 1912, even before he's president, uh, he sees uh, Carter Glass, Representative Carter Glass, who's writing the Federal Reserve Act uh, in his home in Princeton. He immediately sets to um, 
the legislation when he takes office in March. He's a Wilson who is full of not only ideals and passion, but also excitement and political cunning. He, he is a, a he, he's electrified the country. Uh, Barack Obama, I mean Barack Obama of 2008, had nothing on Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was first elected governor in 1910. 18 months later, 18 months after he enters public life, he's already nominated for president. He, he was a, a new thinker. He, he electrified the country, and he has the power in Congress. It's a very difficult bill. There are people on all sides. Many times it's threatened with the deadlock or defeat. And Wilson has political skill, very much reminiscent, I think, of, of Lyndon Johnson. He rams this bill through. At times he, may co- he makes compromises that have to be made. At times, uh, uh, you know, he shows them a, a mailed fist. And I, I think, as you point out, it's not a Woodrow Wilson that, that we remember from his later life. It was also a time of, of a, it's hard to even imagine today, a sense of compromise in Congress. There was a lot getting done besides the, the creation of the, of the Federal Reserve. There was the progressive income tax, direct election of senators, uh, antitrust. I mean, this was all part of, the, of what was going on at the time. That's right. Um, the first Wilson term from, from 1913 to you know, 1917 is considered to be one of the most remarkable and accomplished terms of any in, uh, in American history. The Federal Reserve Act is probably the, the cornerstone of it, but there was significant other legislation. Uh, there was more antitrust legislation to give uh, more teeth to the Sherman Act. Uh, the tariff, which is a, a millstone on uh, American farmers and much of American industry and consumers was was finally reduced. It was a major piece of legislation. As you noted, um, the first peacetime uh, income tax was instituted in that first term, and then the first income tax that, that endured has endured throughout. Um, and you used the term uh, compromise, and it, it really struck me because, you know, as I went through the Labertine negotiations and horse trading that went into the Federal Reserve Act, there were the same divisions that we had today, have today, uh, divisions between uh, bankers and farmers, between uh, bankers in the country and bankers on Wall Street, between Republicans and Democrats, and very particularly between different regions of the country. But with all these divisions, they were able to tackle a tough issue, a complicated issue, a very divisive issue, and come up with a solid, workable piece of legislation, uh, enduring and salutary, in a way that uh, really made the political system proud, and, and uh, you know, one wonders if we still have that capacity today. Talk a little bit about the powers of the Fed as it was originally created, and the way those powers have changed and morphed between then and 2008, for example. Yeah, a uh, great question. So, um, you know, in, in, I'll talk about it in two respects. One is the mechanics. What what was what would the bread and butter operations be of the Fed? And those have completely changed, and I don't want to get uh, uh, too deeply into those weeds. But uh, the idea of the Fed was it was going to be uh, the, the individual Feds, Fed Reserve banks, were going to be buying uh, bank loans from uh, uh, banks, banks around the country, and 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 thereby reinvigorate their supply of credit. Uh, what the Fed has evolved into, the way it uh, adds liquidity to the system now, is essentially buying uh, treasury bills from the government. That's that's the mechanism now. Ben Bernanke did 
unusual things during the financial crisis, but, but that was a financial crisis. So the, the mechanics have changed, and they changed quite quickly because um, the Federal Reserve Act was passed a couple days um, after Christmas, 1913. It took most of 1914 to set it up, uh, choose which cities would have the Federal Reserve Banks, appoint staffs, and so on. And by the time it was up and running, World War I had broken out. The United States quickly became a uh, creditor nation, not a debtor nation. And so, so the, the, the way the Fed interacted in a bread-and-butter sense changed, although its basic function, I think, uh, has stayed the same. Uh, the other way in which it's evolved, and this is a very important way, because there was so much fear of centralization, it wasn't clear in the original, in the original Federal Reserve Act where would the power be. Would it be with the um, you know, Federal Reserve Banks in San Francisco and Kansas City and Chicago and New York? Would it be with the Treasury Secretary, who was a, a member of uh, the original Federal Reserve Board? Would it be with the Federal Reserve Board itself? And there were um, very rough uh, spats. You see in the early years, uh, some banks want to raise rates, other banks lower them, or the Treasury tells them not to do it. And a huge problem in the Depression was it still wasn't clear where the power lay, and therefore there was no single central bank operating with a single voice. Uh, that changed, uh, particularly in the 1950s. Obviously, by the time we had the 2008 financial crisis, we had a much more vigorous Fed than we had in the Depression because it was clear that by then that the power lay with the Reserve Board, with the Reserve Board Chairman, and, and Ben Bernanke was able to act uh, quite resolutely. It's interesting to see how, how weakly the Fed acted, as you talk about, during the Depression, but also what happened in the 70s when the Fed allowed inflation to, to become as out of control as it did. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a... Um, uh, you know, I said in the book that uh, I, I certainly take the position it was a good idea and necessary to uh, create the Federal Reserve, but that the, the, the stewardship, uh, you know, for each generation would be up to that generation, and you know, to to, to lead for for better or worse. In the 70s, um, we'd just gone off the gold standard. Richard Nixon had severed the tie, and and that was an inevitable step because Euro the Europeans were coming back to us demanding gold for dollars and um, uh, there just wasn't enough gold to keep the, to continue circulating the amount of dollars that the economy needed uh, and trading them in for gold. Uh, this is the Fed's first experience uh, with a non-backed uh, piece of paper and they printed too much. Um, it's, it's quite clear from the archives now, this goes outside the period of the book, but it's, it's interesting stuff, that um, Richard Nixon was very eager to be reelected. He didn't want, in 1972. He didn't want a recession. Uh, he leaned on Arthur Burns, the Fed uh, chief, uh, quite bluntly, as Nixon could be capable of, uh, to run the printing press, and uh, and they did. And uh, inflation got uh, very much uh, out of hand. What's been interesting since then, so of course, Paul Volcker became the Fed chief in 1979, one of the one of the most successful Fed chiefs and courageous Fed chiefs in history, because he raised interest rates to very uncomfortable levels, but cured the inflation. What's been interesting since then is people have been predicting ever since we went off the gold standard that the dollar would lose uh, its clout, it would no longer be the reserve currency, no one would else would use it. And in fact, the dollar is stronger on world markets, more respected around the world, I would say more uniquely 
the currency of last resort around the world than ever before. And, and you know what it tells us, it's, it's not the metal in the ground that makes the dollar um, valuable. It's the trust that people have in the American economy, in our system of transparency, in the legal system. We have a set of institutions and a, a bedrock economic strength that, that no country has yet uh, matched. And that's really what makes the dollar strong. And finally, it, it goes to the heart of this debate that has gone on about the Fed from, from its creation to today, which is the degree to which the Fed is or is not a political institution. And it is not. I mean, it was created to be isolated from politics. But in many ways, its political leadership and the political instincts of its leaders, I guess I should say, has been vital in, in both the success and failure of the Fed. Yes. I mean, look, Congress created uh, the Federal Reserve. Congress could abolish it tomorrow. Uh, ultimately, there's no such thing as an entity created by Congress that isn't political. Uh, you know, we have to accept that. But the, the idea was you don't want, say, elected representatives uh, running for office with power to set interest rates. Uh, you want those politically sensitive decisions at one remove. So the Federal Reserve is a political body uh, at, at one remove. Now, there's, that's under threat today. There are bills in Congress that would strip the Fed of its autonomy and put it much more under the direct day-to-day control of Congress, which, which I think it would, would be a mistake. On. And by the same token, but on the other score, the Fed also has to remain independent to, to retain its credibility from the White House and from the executive. And there's a, there's a natural tendency during crises, whether there be wars or as we just had um, a financial crisis, for the Fed and the government to sort of march in lockstep. But, but now that we're really beyond the crisis period, I think a real challenge for Janet Yellen and co. to retain the institution's credibility will be to reassert uh, that independence and, and to take some decisions that, that the Jack Lew and the Treasury Secretary and, and, and the White House may not approve of. Roger Lowenstein, his book is America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. Roger, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 